All right. Let me pray. Father in heaven, um, we pray that as we open up your word this morning, that you would show us new treasures. Uh, Lord, that you would guide us in new truths. Uh, Lord, that you would sanctify new places of our heart. Lord, that you would consecrate our lives in new ways to you and to your glory. Speak to us this morning through Genesis 4. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, well, I want to begin today um, with a question, uh, and this is for the kids too. Uh, how many of you have ever heard the Bible verse that says, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth? So raise your hands at home if you've heard that, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. All right, so most of us have heard that. It's a very famous uh, Bible verse about retaliation in the Old Testament. And it comes from Exodus 21, verses 23 through 25. Uh, and it says, if there is a harm, then you shall pay back life for life, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, hand for a hand, foot for a foot, burn for a burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Now, at first glance, uh, this verse seems pretty straightforward, right? It seems to describe what we're supposed to do if someone else uh, hurts us or hurts a member of our family. But we have to remember that originally this verse was not intended as a command to retaliate, um, as if God sort of commands us to return violence for violence. It was intended to limit the scale of just punishment. So we have to remember that in those days, violent feuds between neighbors was a common threat to social stability. And God is showing his people how to address the problem. So perhaps someone stole your sheep, but that didn't mean that you would get to steal their son, right? So perhaps someone poked out your eye, but that doesn't mean that you can take their life. Uh, because when neighbors responded in this way to each other, it could quickly escalate into a violent feud that would last for generations. So God gave this eye for an eye law to Israel to put a limit on retaliation, to establish the parameters for justice for Israel's judges. It couldn't be uh, a life for an eye. It had to be an eye for an eye. It couldn't be a son for a sheep. It had to be a sheep for a sheep, right? And so, of course, we know that Jesus takes this particular principle much further in the New Testament. He says that it's better not to seek personal revenge at all, that his disciples should not actually make use of this right. In Matthew 5, verses 38 through 41, Jesus says this. He says, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Now, I'm especially thankful for Jesus' teaching on this point, not only because he shows us the ultimate way of love, but because I've actually literally knocked someone's teeth out. All right, um, so let me tell you a little bit about this story this morning. The, vic uh, the victim was my friend 
Wesley. Now I'm going to share you uh, with you a picture of Wesley. All right. Uh, so here's my friend Wesley uh, with his little sister. Wesley is a Christian. In fact, uh, we went to seminary together, uh, but he didn't always believe in Jesus. His father was a Buddhist. And when I first met Wesley years ago, he was actually agnostic. Uh, but Wesley and I struck up a friendship. We shared a mutual love for songwriting. And um, after having some good spiritual conversations, I invited him to study uh, the life of Jesus with me in the Gospels. He'd never read the Gospels. And I shared my testimony with him and uh, began teaching him about prayer. And eventually, through a series of events and a series of people witnessing to him, um, he came to faith in Christ. Um, but that's not really what my story is about this morning. As I said today, I want to tell you about the time that I accidentally knocked Wesley's teeth out. Now, um, it was only that this event took place only about a week or two after Wesley had put his faith in Christ. And we were playing flag football together on the large green, Landis Green, uh, outside of the library at FSU. And uh, at one point, he caught a pass and I, as I, right as I'm lunging for his flag, he spun around in a way that I didn't anticipate. And um, my forehead collided with his mouth. Now, um, I want to share um, a really silly cartoon that he made and posted on the internet after this event happened to tease me about it because he knew that I felt bad. All right, you guys see that? Hold on a second. I got so many screens open, I can't see what you see. All right, you guys can see that. Yes, yeah, so, um, so uh, when Wesley and I collided, um, I heard this crack and I immediately felt pain in my forehead. It was sort of like a cross between being headbutted and getting bit at the same time. Uh, but Wesley definitely got the worst end of it. In fact, if you look in the little illustration, um, you can see this little, this little tooth that he has floating through the air, but it wasn't just one tooth I knocked out. Um, I turned and I saw blood pouring out of Wesley's mouth. But worse than that, I saw him spit out a couple of his teeth root and all right into his hand. All right, now um, I'm gonna show you the picture of Wesley with his teeth knocked out, uh, but this is not for the faint of heart. So if you, uh, if you don't think you can handle this, then, uh, then I urge you not to look at the screen right now, all right? All right, there's Wesley. <laughs> I'm kind of glad that the audio is muted right now. <laughs> And I can't hear you guys reacting. Um, yeah, it's, it's super gross. Uh, and I was his InterVarsity staff. I was his campus minister. I felt so bad. And uh, we ended up rushing Wesley to the hospital in an ambulance. And they even let me ride in the back seat with him. And eventually, actually, a Christian dentist um, left the high school football game and was willing to open up his office at like 8 or 9 o'clock at night to help um, Wesley with his teeth. Now, I'm thankful that Wesley didn't demand tooth-for-tooth tooth justice because I would not want any part of that injury. In fact, yes. 
let's close that. <laughs> um, uh, it was an accident after all, and, uh, and Wesley was actually really gracious about it, even though he was only like 19 years old at the time. Uh, he didn't demand an injury for an injury. He didn't escalate the situation through retaliation. Um, but we meet a very different character in our reading today from Genesis 4, because Lamech not only returns injury for injury, he responds with murderous vengeance. Now, would you please grab a Bible and turn with me to Genesis 4, verses 17 through 26? And at this point, I want to release the younger kids. Um, sometimes they only hang with us for a little while there. So um, I bless you to, to, to go about your, the rest of your morning routine. So please turn with me to Genesis chapter 4, verses 17 through 26. Now, most of you have probably uh, never heard a sermon on the genealogy of Cain before. Uh, in some ways, this, uh, this, this passage of scripture is sort of like a sequel to the story of Cain and Abel. Uh, but in other ways, it's actually kind of a prequel to the flood and to the Tower of Babel. Genesis 4 lays out seven generations of the line of Cain, and then they're contrasted with the ten um, more righteous ancestors of his brother Seth, which are set forth in Genesis 5. Now look down with me at verse 17, if you would, Genesis 4, verse 17. It says, Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. Now, this isn't the same Enoch from Seth's line. There are actually some overlapping names. Even Lamech is an overlapping name. Um, but Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. Um, when he built a city, that is, when Cain built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. Now, a careful reader will notice right away that something is not right here. Because by choosing to settle down and build a city, Cain is once again disobeying the voice of God, who had told him in verse 12 that he was to be a fugitive and wanderer on the earth, right? So not only was Cain no longer wandering, he was like setting up shop. And his ancestors would become not only the first shepherds, verse 20, but also the first musicians, verse 21, and the first forgers of all instruments of bronze and iron, verse 22, including, of course, weapons of war. But it would be a mistake to think that nothing good comes out of Cain's ge genealogy. There's actually a lot of creativity and ingenuity to be celebrated here. Because first of all, God is not opposed to cities or to urbanization. The definitive divine word on cities is not to be found in the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, but in the New Jerusalem, in all its cultural fullness described in the book of Revelation. Secondly, God is certainly not opposed to art and music and metalworking, all of which are also featured prominently in the New Jerusalem. So it's important to see that Cain's line actually goes a long way toward fulfilling the cultural mandate that God had given Adam and Eve back in Genesis 1.28, the call for human beings to exercise dominion, to develop the latent potentialities of creation. So what was wrong with this picture of Cain's line? Why do Bible interpreters see it as a kind of precursor to the flood and to the Tower of Babel? Because in it, we already see signs of cultural degeneration. 
signs that the individual sin of Adam and Eve, and even of Cain himself, would later get encrusted into a kind of social or systemic unrighteousness. And it's not without significance that the two problem areas emphasized here in Genesis 4, the perversion of marriage on the one hand and the proliferation of violence on the other, are the same two issues that Genesis 6 gives as a background as reasons for the flood. So let's look at, look at both briefly. The first problem is the perversion of marriage. Verse 19 says that Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Ada. The name of the other was Zillah. This is the first example of polygamy in the Bible, and it was clearly a departure from the pattern that God had established in creation. Uh, in the teaching of Genesis 2, which is reaffirmed by Jesus in the New Testament, uh, marriage is a one flesh union between one man and one woman, which calls for exclusive lifelong fidelity. So polygamy uh, not to mention polyamory and promiscuity and cohabitation. None of these things are a part of God's original design for human sexuality. Of course, there are many examples of polygamy in the Old Testament, even among some relative heroes like Abraham and Solomon, but it's never actually affirmed by God, and the results in Scripture are always negative. And the reason for this is clear, as Jesus would say in the New Testament, because from the beginning, it was not so. This widespread cultural practice introduced by Lamech came about as a result of sin, not God's design. Now, it's important to be clear how cultural or social sin works in the Bible, because there is such a thing in the Bible. Lamech, of course, is just one man making an individual choice, and his neighbors don't bear the guilt for his sin of polygamy, of course. However, his actions sort of move the yardstick. They move the boundary markers of morality for his neighbors and his ancestors. And as the moral needle moves, rich men begin actively looking for multiple wives. And fathers begin being okay with marrying off their daughters to men who are closer to their own age, who already have families of their own. And ceremonies are created to attempt to sacralize what is in its very nature unholy. And a whole debased sort of superstructure, a self-perpetuating system of sin gets encrusted into the culture in such a way that a lot of people are wrapped up into it, even though they never made a choice to be. So in the context of a biblical genealogy, the point is that Lamech's sin opens the door for others to sin. And soon enough, something that was hitherto unknown becomes commonplace. He's poisoned the well. And because polygamy is contrary to God's design, it's to the detriment of all involved, not just his surrounding culture, but even to Lamech, whether he realizes it or not, and certainly to his wives. The second area of cultural degeneration is the proliferation of violence, which is emphasized so much in Genesis 6, as we saw, but it's also manifested in the life of Lamech. Verses 22 through 24 says, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me. Listen to him boast, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, 
then Lamex is 77-fold. Now, depending on how you view Adam's response to Eve in Genesis 2, this is either the first or second example of poetry in the entire Bible. So there's a new cultural um, good is, is here, but it's, it's, uh, it's once again tainted by sin. And because of, of the themes in this of, of women and weapons and violence, one inner city pastor referred to it as primeval gangster rap. Uh, he said that Lamech makes some bars about killing a man and then claims that he's justified in doing this because Cain was protected seven times over. So Lamech must therefore be avenged 77 times over. So Lamech has made his own law and his own sense of justice. And it's so true. And this spirit of vengeance is still celebrated in our music and movies today in so many places. Many of you are old enough to remember with me the, the feud uh, between East and West, between Tupac and the notorious B.I.G. that escalated in the late 90s. And what began as a war of words ended in the tragic death of two promising young men. And even afterwards, uh, the kids in my high school didn't take the matter seriously. I remember the cars in the parking lot still blasting the song where Tupac promises to kill Biggie and his children. Now, we don't really know what happened in, in these uh, murders. Uh, it's, it's, it's unclear, but, but this is the kind of thing that they were boasting about to one another. And in view of Lamech's words to his multiple women in verses 22, 23, and 24, clearly there's nothing new under the sun. God's sevenfold promise in verse 15 was about protecting someone else, someone who is vulnerable, whereas Lamech's 77-fold boast is about his own personal pride and vengeance. And this phrase, 77-fold, is also notoriously difficult to translate in the Greek version of the Bible, which was so common, commonplace uh, in Jesus's day. So um, you may know that um, the Jews gave special importance to numbers in the Bible, imbuing them with great symbolic significance. Numbers like 40 and 12 and 10 occur again and again. But there's only one other occurrence of this particular Greek phrase in all of the rest of scripture. And we find it actually in our gospel reading today from Matthew 18, verse 22. So let's turn there for a minute to Matthew 18, verse 22. And I'll back up just a little bit. In context, Jesus has been teaching his disciples about forgiveness and reconciliation with someone who's wronged you. And Peter asks him in verse 21, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Now, Peter asks an important question. The rabbis of his day generally taught that forgiving someone up to three times showed uh, the appropriate amount of grace. And Peter, though, knowing his master, guessed correctly that Jesus would have his disciples go much further than that. Uh, and he, so he must have felt like he was the teacher's pet to suggest a figure as high as seven, when most of the rabbis said three. But um, interestingly, Jesus' response just sort of blows their mind. It blows it out of the water. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times 
And sometimes this phrase, this ambiguous phrase, is translated 70 times 7. But either way, the point is clear. Jesus is giving such a, a high multiple that he's implying that there's, there's truly no limit to the forgiveness that we're to offer to others. But for the keen Jewish reader who so loved biblical numbers, there was an even deeper um, significance to this point because by referencing the exact same phrase that Lamech used in Genesis 4.24, Jesus is drawing a direct connection, a contrast between the gospel of grace on the one hand and the vengeful spirit of man on the other. By invoking perhaps the most wrathful man in all of biblical history, Jesus is teaching his disciples that they must learn to be as adept at forgiveness as Lamech was at vengeance. In this way, through our radical forgiveness of one another, we proclaim to the watching world the gospel of grace. In this way, we show forth the message of the cross to the world, which God used to reverse the sinful curse that came down to us. In this way, we put the whole world on notice that no matter how far they've strayed or how far they've fallen or how many people they've let down, there's still hope for radical forgiveness in God. He can make us clean. Now, let me summarize as I begin to draw to a close. We began by considering um, the biblical teaching on an eye for an eye. And I told you this uh, silly story of accidentally knocking out my friend Wesley's teeth. But in response to Genesis 4, 17 through 26, I hope we'll take a sober look at our own culture. Because these two problem areas in the line of Cain, the perversion of marriage and the proliferation of violence, are clearly still major issues, not just for the human race today, but for our country. Because by any straightforward reading of scripture, it's not an exaggeration to say that our perversion of marriage actually goes further than the sin of Lamech. And, and the fact that we don't see this is because we are actually blinded by the spirit of the age rather than being guided by the word. And secondly, by any standard, the mass proliferation of handguns and assault rifles through our populace causes far more carnage than any bronze sword could ever do. Now, I, like, I'm not talking about hunting rifles. I'm talking about weapons that were designed to kill people, and we have them by the bucket loads. And I find it ironic and morally arbitrary that our country has like one political party that only seems to care about the first issue and another one that only cares about the second. And that's why us, that's why we as the people of God are not to take our moral guidance from politicians, but from the prophets who were inspired by the Holy Spirit. The Baptist theologian Russell Moore tells the story of seeing um, this bumper sticker that said, um, if Jesus had had a gun, he would be alive today. And uh, he said from the other bumper stickers he saw in the car, it appeared that this person was a professing Christian who desperately needed to be catechized in the fact that Jesus is alive today. And more continues. He says the assumption that's there behind that bumper sticker, which could have just as easily been an argument for the opposite position, is that Jesus is the argument for what I really care about, which is my position one way or another on this or that issue. So much of what goes on in contemporary American culture, says Moore, is about that. 
But before we leave this passage this morning, and above all, in view of the ongoing troubles of the human race, the ongoing troubles in our day, I want us to consider the contrast between the way of Lamech and the way of Jesus. Are we disciples of Lamech or disciples of Jesus? Are we going to fall back into Adam or are we going to lean into Jesus? Because in one, we see the embodiment of anger and pride and unforgiveness and the other of grace and humility and forbearance. Lamech's lust for vengeance is 77-fold, whereas Jesus' forgiveness was 70 times 7. In Jesus, we have an unfathomable opportunity to be made totally clean in the eyes of heaven, to be reconciled to God. Human life was cheap in the reckoning of Lamech, but in the reckoning of God, we've been bought with a price. Therefore, we also have been given this command, this gospel imperative to forgive the sins of others, even as we have been forgiven, to cancel the small debt because God has canceled our great debt in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.